So what is Shakespeare? I ask what because who is Shakespeare is pretty straightforward. He was a Renaissance poet and a playwright who wrote for the London stage during the reigns of Queen Elizabeth and King James. We know that much. We don't know a lot more about Shakespeare's life, but we do know enough to piece together the outlines of who he was, and we certainly have a good grasp on what he became known for. But Shakespeare is much, much more than just a famous dramatist. His name is a symbol and signifier, rightly or wrongly, for a particular combination of class, education, background, and interest. For most high school students forced to read his plays, he's a study in boredom and confusion. He's a jewel of national pride and even propaganda for some people in England even 400 years after he died. He's an entire industry, made up of actors and directors, publishers, academics, tourism officials, and kitschy souvenir manufacturers. He's the most cited and most discussed member of the official canon of English literature and a worldwide ambassador for the English language. His works are second only to the Bible in terms of total sales volumes. He's an icon. The Bard. Arguably the most well-known writer in the history of the world. One thing Shakespeare is not, though, is easy. His writing can be jarring to the modern ear, requiring annotations and footnotes to really grab a hold of all the shades of meaning in the plays themselves, as well as the context for what those plays were like four centuries ago. And his reputation alone is daunting. Many people avoid his work just for that reason. Maybe they're worried that they won't understand it, and the worry underneath that one being that they'll be seen as ignorant or stupid if they try and fail to get it. It's not really surprising that few people outside of academia admit to reading Shakespeare. Nothing marks you off as a pretentious killjoy faster than admitting that you like the bard. But that's not how I see Shakespeare. I think once you start to see the similarities between the stories he was telling and the stories we hear and read and see and tell ourselves every day, it becomes clear that Shakespeare is talking about a human condition that's not so very different from our own. We can still connect with the characters and with the stories being told. With a little patience and a little time, I'm hoping that we can show that Shakespeare is not as unreachable as our popular culture would have you all believe. In this podcast, we're going to be talking about all these different parts of Shakespeare. But first, we're going to transport you back in time just a little bit and talk about the context around Shakespeare's plays. The politics, the religious atmosphere, the state of the language, and yes, even a bit about the man himself. We're hoping this will help make future entries into the plays of Shakespeare a little bit easier to latch onto. Since brevity is the soul of wit, more of your conversation would infect my brain. Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? To speak of him as my kinsman, he's a most notable coward, an infinite and endless liar, an hourly promise breaker, the owner of no one good quality worthy your lordship's entertained. And beat thee, but I should infect my hand. The lady doth protest too much, methinks. The course of true love never did run smooth. And I say we because I am joined by my partner, Lindsay Stamuse. My name is Aiden Hales, and we are collectively known as the Bix. Say hello, Lindsay. Hello, Lindsay. Aw. Did the little dad joke that I, I set did. up. That's great. I did. Oh, that's Walked nice. Walked right into it. Yeah, it's great. Uh, so, yeah, we are the Bix, and uh, this is our podcast all about Shakespeare. Um, you may be wondering, uh, who are we, and why are we talking about Shakespeare? <laughs> Uh, we are Shakespeare fans, I guess yep. you could say. Uh, we did take a course on Shakespeare. Just the one. Just, just the, the one. one. We we have degrees in English Well, we have literature. English literature degrees, but we did take a dedicated full-year university course yes. on Shakespeare. We read yes. quite a few of the plays then. 15 or 16 of the plays, yeah. I think. Yeah, we, we are 
uh, we're amateur scholars, I guess, on on the Bard, and we uh, we enjoy reading and enjoy uh, watching all of his plays. Uh, and we're also amateur writers, so we take often, if you haven't listened to our uh, Bickering Peaks episodes, we do take kind of a literary and uh, writerly. Uh, slant on a lot of the things you know some criticism some some things how we would do differently and so forth so that might yeah we're gonna totally run Shakespeare through the ringer yeah us we are so much Shakespeare you should have done this instead of that Uh, well in some cases uh, (laughs) having just read uh, the two gentlemen of Verona I think there's a point to be made there but anyways Am I using that right? What right do we have to talk about Shakespeare? I think that's the more important question that people might be curious to find out about. And I, I would I would counter with, why shouldn't we talk about Shakespeare? Yeah. I think Aiden brought up a good point in his intro that um, our our culture has built up this this mythology around Shakespeare that he is unreachable and and difficult and it's true that there's a lot more work that needs to go into reading Shakespeare than there is to reading Dan Brown or um Stephen King or Stephen King or or one of the popular authors of of the last you know of this generation say but that doesn't mean that that the work of Shakespeare needs to be relegated to some ivory tower academia. And I think that's one of the reasons why we wanted to tackle Shakespeare so soon after doing Twin Peaks. It may seem like a bit of a jarring jump, but for us it's not. Because if you look at the stories in the English language, they they all come from somewhere. And, and a lot of them are explored very early on here in Shakespeare. And we could, we could have gone back and talked about Chaucer instead. But um, I think Shakespeare is so universal that there's really no reason why we couldn't tap into something interesting. And we the, no reason why we couldn't explain it to people. I think um, I'm a teacher and Aiden is, is not, not a teacher, but, <laughs> but he... He does a good job of explaining these things, and, and he has bright ideas about these things. So, I mean, together, I think the two of us could could put our skills to use and maybe help proselytize for the cause of Shakespeare scholarship and Shakespeare, um, the Shakespeare fandom, let's mm-hmm. let's call that. It's a very small fandom on it Tumblr. Is. There's, but there's not a lot of fanfic out there, <laughs> but, you know, the, the ones that are out there, they're pretty dedicated, so it's, it's good to be a part of. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in our philosophy. Um, so I guess, you know, where everybody starts is, is talking about Shakespeare himself and, and what do we actually know about Shakespeare? What yes. do what do people know about Shakespeare? And I think there's a lot, like I said, myth-making. There's a lot of that that goes on with Shakespeare. Um, and, and especially nowadays, we have questions about, was he gay? Uh was he even the writer of the plays is a, is a popular question. I mean, these are these are things when, when we talk about Shakespeare, it's the stuff that people come up with. They mm-hmm. say, you know, these are the questions they ask. It's true that there's very, very little that we actually know. Hard, hard fact, yeah. Yes, about the man from Stratford. Um, he was born in 1564. Mm-hmm. Probably around April 23rd, because he was baptized on April 26th. And at that time, it was very common to baptize your children very quickly after birth, just in case they died, which was very common at the time. Um, I think three in ten children 
didn't make their 12th birthday or something like that. Yeah, that it might right. even it might have been higher. Oh, I don't know. Yeah. But at the time, the year that Shakespeare was born, plague swept through England again, and he was very lucky to have survived infancy. Mm-hmm. So this was this was not. Um, uh, baptism at, at that point was not something that was done just, you know, because it's what we do. There was a very real fear that your child would die and be left in purgatory if you did not baptize him. Mm-hmm. Um, so he was born in Stratford-upon-Avon to Mary Arden and John Shakespeare. Mary Arden was the daughter of a prominent landowning family. Yep. John Shakespeare was not no. <laughs> he was he was more uh, middle class i think yeah i mean he was he started his career as a glover so he was a leather worker he made gloves um but he was very ambitious uh john shakespeare and he quickly rose up in the uh, local ranks to become what's the equivalent of the mayor of the town of Stratford. I think they called it the alderman. Alderman, yeah. Yeah. Uh, And so, I mean, it's a fairly high profile position. Um, There was work and uh, talk of him trying to get a coat of arms for the Shakespeare family, um, which happened later on through his son. Uh, But, uh, you know, he was kind of, he was an upwardly mobile individual. And he he had a a weird way of going about it because there were a lot of legal troubles that he ran into with um, his illegal wool dealing and um, other other such things that that didn't exactly mark him off as gentleman material. Uh, Something which his son later, as Aiden said, later rectified. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so Shakespeare grew up in this fairly small town. It was, well, it, uh, of the time, it was actually fairly, probably a middle-sized town um, that was, you know, it was involved. Couple thousand people? Yeah, I think 2,000 or something yeah. around there at the time. Uh, and yeah, it was, it was heavily involved in the wool trade at the time, which was very profitable. Uh, this was a time when uh, England was really, you know, it was the first kind of early globalization. England was producing the wool that went to uh, the Netherlands to turn into clothing. Right. Um, and this was a very profitable endeavor for everybody. Um, so that's why when John Shakespeare was smuggling it, he got wrapped on the hand pretty good. Um, but anyways, uh, so Shakespeare grew up here. Um, we don't know. We don't know for sure, but most likely is this the son of the mayor. He would have attended the local school. Yeah. Uh, King school. King or, James school. Yeah. Named after Henry VIII's son. Yeah. one of the schools that he endowed. Edward's school. So you yeah. said King James. Sorry, yeah, Sorry King, King James. Yeah. King Edward's school. Yeah. Uh, presumably he would have went there and uh, we presume it would have had a very thorough curriculum at the time. Uh, thorough by our standards. Yes. Uh, the, the curriculum, <laughs> the curricula that yes. are being taught nowadays would be child's play to these children. They would be learning Latin and Greek and they would be advanced maths and, and translations of, they would be translating works into English, you know, by the age of 12 or 13. Mm -hmm. And um, so it would have been a very, very thorough education. Shakespeare didn't graduate to any great colleges as other members of his social class may have or people his own age would have. He didn't attend Oxford or Cambridge or any of the other great uh, universities in England. Um, We don't really know what happened after he finished school his father lost his position as alderman and so he probably lost his position at the school is is how the story goes um at the age of 17 or 18 he um knocked up a local girl and married her yeah her name was (laughs) Anne Hathaway yeah and she bore him three children um their first child was Susanna and then they had twins, Hamnet and Judith, um, some years later. Um, Hamnet later died. He was 11 years old when he died. 
maybe of plague, but yeah, there's no real sure. um, hard evidence about what what killed him. But Shakespeare was not someone to stay in Stratford for very long. His lost years kind of bridged the gap between his last known whereabouts in Stratford and his appearance on the London stage in about 1589, yeah, 88. Yeah. Um, and in that time, from, from the early 1580s on, to that period he's not anywhere anywhere there's we no have record no idea no idea what happened what he was doing yep. but there is uh lots of theorizing my personal favorite is that he uh stowed away on a merchant ship and traveled to italy because so many of his plays are set in italy and uh he you know spoke a little italian or he picked up a little italian which he could have done in london as well but um my i like the romantic gesture of him you know he's got a kid back home but he's going on the seas to to make his fortune right um and then winds up back in london uh you know probably destitute but you know with a whole lifetime of experiences to uh, write about and that's my preferred one but there's no evidence of that whatsoever so uh there are many others there's yeah uh, I, I mean there's i think the the one that that tickles my fancy is that either that he um, took over as teacher at the school where he taught. The teacher would say this, yes. Right? Um, yeah, well, I, I, I just think that there's some romance in that too. Sure. Um, or that he joined up with a traveling troupe of players who came through Stratford and continued on their tour of the provinces and that that's how he actually got his his, his start in the theater yeah yeah in the door of of the london theater hmm. um but as as we said there's no evidence for any of this it's all supposition and until a piece of paper shows up you know with his name on it on some passenger manifest for <laughs> bound for italy or yeah. whatever we're never gonna know yeah. um, but what we do know is that he is he's mentioned in the late 1580s as being a player on the stage in london mm-hmm. and he's already developed a reputation of being a bit of an upstart crow if you want there's actually a quote from a groat's worth of wit that uh, was the first mention of what we think is is the first mention of shakespeare yeah. And then from there, uh, he we developed a much more thorough uh, list of references of him because he, you know, as a player and later on as a playwright, uh, he's fairly well known. His he writes a bunch of poems uh, when the uh, playhouses are closed, um, and due to plague, due to plague, yes, of course, still has to make his make his money, make somehow. his money. So he published some sonnets and two longer poems, uh, "The Rape of Lucrece" and "Venus and Adonis." Venus and Adonis. Um, so yeah, he's, he's a busy guy. And then in the 15, late 1590s through to 1613 ish, he's a very busy playwright. He does a lot of, uh, the major plays that he's well known for the Hamlets, the Othellos, the King Lear, Romeo and Juliet, you know, he's, these are his, his peak years, I I guess you could say. Um, and yeah, he's fairly well known. And he writes about 37 plays in between this time. There are others that are mentioned, but they've been lost. Um, it's possible that some of them went up in the fire that consumed the Globe Theater in 1613, which is when a lot of people suppose um, Shakespeare just kind of gave up on playwriting and went back to Stratford because he did leave London and, and retired. A very wealthy man mm-hmm. bought the second biggest house in Stratford and yeah. was a landowner to the yeah. big, a big extreme. He had a lot of land up a there. A bunch of land. And, uh, and retired. Um but yes, there are some other plays that, that we know that he was involved with, but we don't have them. And there are other plays that we think were co-written that he helped write for other people. So he was not, I mean, the 37 plays that we are going to be discussing here are the ones that are solely attributed to Shakespeare that we know were written by him or that were attributed to him. Um, 
that excludes all those other ones that we that we don't have. Yeah, although we'll probably talk about those in yeah. passing or maybe give them their own episode or something like For that. Sure. We'll see. Um, but those those plays are, are just to kind of, again, cover the, the major topics here. Uh, they're generally broken down into kind of four uh, categories. Uh, well, three and then maybe a fourth. Three and a half. Three and a half, I would say, <laughs> sure. So there's the histories, which is the historical plays, usually about English monarchs, but also uh, Julius Caesar and Antony and Cleopatra kind of fall into that category. Yeah. Uh, there's the tragedies, which are the named characters that are fictional. The Othello, the King Lear, the, the Romeo and Juliet. Hamlet. The Hamlet. Everyone dies. Uh, those Macbeth. are the those are the tragedies, yeah. And then there's the comedies, uh, which usually end in a, ro- in a wedding, is the traditional understanding yeah. of how comedies work. And a lot of them are funny. Some are less funny than others, but uh, they they're, there's a happy ending at the end of a comedy. Um, and then the third and a half uh, branch is considered the romance category. Yeah. And that's uh, a bit of a... It doesn't fit into the other three, basically. Right. Um, usually there is a, um, a happier ending, or it's kind of an ambiguous ending, yeah. or um, there's just no marriage, but everybody's okay. It, it's, it's a little different, and uh, because it didn't fall into those easy categories, it, it, people sometimes struggle where to slot those ones in. They're a bit problematic. The problem plays the are problem another, plays. another way that they're described, but I like the term romance a lot more than problem play. Um, so Shakespeare being a poet first and foremost um, uses meter to write a lot of his his plays and uh, he employs it in an interesting way. Now I haven't read a lot of other Elizabethan poetry or plays. I don't know Aiden if you've read any Not other Not too ones. much, but a few. Yeah. Um, but, but Shakespeare's chosen meter was iambic pentameter mm-hmm. and this was what he used in his sonnets so the sonnet form is a is a poem of 14 lines mm-hmm. with um a rhyming couplet at the end and he wrote them in um iambic pentameter as well so iambic pentameter for those of you who slept through your grade 10 uh english classes Lindsay's um, very upset at you for this but yes no i'm not at all <laughs> I, I i i relish the opportunity to, <laughs> to employ my teaching skills here um I am refers to the type of foot that is present in the line. Mm-hmm. And I am re- refers to two syllables per foot with the stress on the second syllable. So kind of think about it as like a heartbeat. Da-dum, da-dum, da-dum. Pentameter refers to the number of feet in a line. Pentameter obviously meaning five feet. Mm-hmm. So each line is composed of five feet of two syllables each. So ten syllables per line. And every foot, the stress is on the second syllable. It's not perfect. Shakespeare, yeah. you know, crams things in just like modern songwriters do, and uh, with it with their verse. But um, but generally speaking, that's how iambic pentameter works. Mm-hmm. When a character is speaking in iambic pentameter in a Shakespearean play, typically they're somebody of a higher station mm-hmm. or somebody who is feeling a depth of emotion. They're passionate about something. They're angry about something. So they're. Ex- Exposing their heart, I guess, is a good way of thinking about it. The the heartbeat comes through in their words, and um, and that's really cool to to see performed, um, and to listen to the the way that those words um, kind of trip on the tongue or off the tongue, I guess, as it were. It's said that iambic pentameter was easier for. Um, players to memorize the lines because maybe because it matches up with the heartbeat but um either way it is very fascinating to listen to and when you know to look for verse in the plays it it does kind of help out um when you're reading them on the page yeah especially reading once when they're being performed uh sometimes 
it's a little more difficult to yeah, tell. You I find it. it. You don't hear it as, as much. Well, but. and nobody stands up there and says, you know, no. when in disgrace with fortune and men's eyes, because nobody reads the sonnets either out yeah. loud. But either way, <laughs> um, so so yeah, it's not it's not exactly a, a perfect um, way of. Yeah, working yeah, with working with it. But yeah. The opposite uh, of that is is uh, blank verse or the prose, or prose writing. Prose is what it's called, yeah. Yeah, and uh, where it's just lines written. There's no rhyme scheme or anything like that. And that's, again, usually reserved for other characters who are uneducated and, and lower class or people who are just dilly-dallying about. Yeah. It is a tale told by an idiot. It's full of sound and fury. Signifying? Nothing. So we'll talk a little bit here about um, the context. What, what was it like in Shakespeare's times? What was He was growing up in the 1560s and all the way through to 1616. There was a lot happening, um, a lot changing. And uh, yeah, we just want to cover uh, a bit of that. Let's And we'll start with the, the highest level, the political stuff, what was going on in the 16th century. Um, it was a turbulent time in England. Let's wow, just say that's that. an understatement <laughs> of the century. Uh, of that century, at least, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so there, they had just kind of uh, Queen Elizabeth um, was on the throne for most of Shakespeare's life, um, and she was a breath of nice peace and calm, quiet air uh, compared to what had come before, which was the War of the Roses, which was uh, basically a, a low key kind of civil war between two different uh, royal uh, branches of the royal family. Mm-hmm. I guess you could say there was Henry the Sixth who. Um, was I believe the Lancastrian king, and he reigned for quite a while. Um, and then there was Edward, his son, I think. And then there was Richard the Third came in, and he was a Yorkist. Basically, this was a uh, a large interfamily uh, dispute over who would have the. Well, throne. yeah. If you have a, an unbroken line of kings, it's easy to tell who's going to take over when one king dies. But they're just that didn't happen. Yeah. So you had people warring and fighting over who was going, who had the better claim to the throne, and and yeah. So the York Yorkist side and the Lancastrian side fought for about thirty three years or something, something like that, that. Um, which ended in the Battle of Bosworth Field in fourteen. Uh, 85? 85. 85, 85, sure. yes. Um, and so the two houses were united uh, when Henry, the man who became Henry the Seventh, uh, ma- uh, married. I think he was a, a Lancastrian or Yorkist, and he married the daughter of a. Henry the other was one. a Yorkist, or was a Lancastrian. He married, married a, the, a Yorkist daughter. A Yorkist and daughter created the House of Tudor. Yes, which was the new uh, family that reigned England at this time, uh, and his son. Henry VIII, uh, was also famous for different reasons because he created the Church of England, uh, broke up, broke away from the Pope uh, and created a Protestant kin- kingdom and Protestant church in England. Why did he do this, Aiden? Uh, he had a tendency to not like his wives yeah. and uh, wanting to, to divorce them. And of so course, divorce being a sin still is today. Divorce is not, not uh, allowed in Catholic allowed. marriages. Yep. Yeah. So, so, yep. so Henry had married his brother's widow, um, then had his eye on his brother's widow's lady-in-waiting, Anne Boleyn. Um, she wouldn't grant him a divorce because she was fiercely Catholic. The Pope wouldn't grant him a divorce, so he annulled the marriage and created uh, the Church of England instead, married Anne Boleyn, and then married... Uh, a few more Well, ladies. killed Anne, married yeah. Jane. Jane died. He married another Anne. Then he married another Catherine, and then another Catherine. 
and he killed one of the Catherines, and then he died. Yeah, it's he had six <laughs> wives in yes. total, and, and uh, it's, a couple it's, kids with them, uh, yes. including a son, Edward, who uh, he died of some kind of lung infection, I think. Mm. And um, and he and had then, no children. Of course, he had no children because he was fifteen at the yeah, time, died, or something yeah. like that. So his older sister Mary, who was the product of I hate using that I word know, product, but, yeah. the daughter of Henry and his first wife, yeah. he he'd made an act of Parliament that that reinstated them in the line of succession after he declared them both bastards, both Mary and Elizabeth as bastards. Um, But he brought that back and so uh, brought them back into the line of succession. So when Edward died, the crown passed to Mary. And that was a jarring shift because Mary wanted to switch everything back to Catholicism. (laughs) And so the, the years that she reigned, and she didn't reign for very long, but she... Um, it was a, it was a very turbulent time because she was so paranoid about being usurped by Protestants that she killed so many Protestants. It was like <laughs> that's why we call her Bloody Mary. So Mary was was not a beloved queen. No, and, and she died of some kind of um, possibly ovarian cancer or uterine mm. cancer, which is actually quite sad because she wanted a child so, so badly bad, yeah. to secure the lineage and secure Catholicism. Probably in honor of her mother, who was yeah killed know, for being well, Catholic. <laughs> no, she wasn't killed. She she died. Oh, I thought. Oh, yeah, no, right. She was not one of the ones who was killed. Sorry, there's so many Henry wives. Yeah, I forget which ones get killed. But she um she dies, and Elizabeth takes over and immediately reverts back to Protestantism. But it's a softer kind of Protestantism. She yeah. doesn't. It's still not okay to practice Catholicism openly, but she's not as fervent in her, you know, burning people at the stake. Yes, there's there's less less witch hunting. Um, I mean, you could still call someone. Oh no, they were actually hunting witches. like that definitely happened. Yes, but yes, but not everybody who was a Catholic was was hunted down and and killed. And it was it was slightly harder to just say, oh, that guy's a Catholic, you should totally kill him. And you know, there wasn't quite as much prejudice, um, and it was a comparatively uh, more peaceful. So, and Elizabeth was the daughter of Anne Boleyn and Henry VIII, so Henry's second wife. Yes. yeah, so she and she reigned for forty five years or something mm-hmm. like that. She died in sixteen oh three. Yep, and it was again a very peaceful reign. Uh, yeah. There was a, a brief war with uh, Spain, which yeah. they won because of a storm, which yeah. is always great when you don't even have to fight the other guy's navy. Um, so uh, yeah, again a very peaceful reign, and then a very peaceful transition into yeah. the reign of James the first, which is kind of crazy because uh, James the first mother was Mary Queen of Scots who was also Catholic had a stronger claim arguably to the English throne than Elizabeth did because of craziness yeah well they were both descended from the same person but she had a much clearer line of of descent than Elizabeth did yeah and probably would have if the War of the Roses hadn't happened and hadn't turned out the way it did but either way Elizabeth had Mary Queen of Scots killed for um plotting against her life supposedly although there's not a lot of proof that mary actually did that um but she had installed mary's son james the sixth of scotland as her successor at some point in the 1570s i think mm-hmm. and so um he comes to the throne and unites the two countries of scotland and england so he's known as james the sixth and the first yeah. so um it's an important uh, important moment in the history of the united kingdom mm-hmm. because it leads to what we have yeah leads today. to the united kingdom yeah, yeah exactly and great britain yeah so uh 
Yeah. So again, a very a peaceful time really is is really the crux of that whole political and situation. And what happens when you have a peaceful time in a, in a country's history? There is time for other things than war, basically. Uh, so there was a lot of economic development. I mentioned uh, the cotton uh, trade with uh, Flanders and uh, all the Low Countries. Um, other Protestant countries. Yeah, well, especially. <laughs> um, but even internally, there was a lot of uh, migration and a lot of economic growth. And that migration mostly was headed towards London, yeah. which is where Shakespeare wound up. Um, and this is basically the birth of the Renaissance in England. Uh, the Renaissance, of course, being the rebirth uh, of the refinding of the classical ways of ancient Greece and ancient Rome. Which had been happening on the continent for a couple hundred years, but had largely bypassed England yeah, up England, until this period. England, because they'd been in civil wars and yes. stuff, they were kind of a backwater and they didn't have the, the cultural... Uh, Cachet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they didn't have the wealth, frankly, to, to kind of afford, you know, playing playwrights and so forth. Um, but this was kind of kickstarting that in, in England. So... Um, yeah, at this point, uh, London was a city, a growing city of almost 200,000 people, I believe, um, which is huge in that time. Like yeah, considering the, that most other cities, towns in, in England would have been at most 20,000 people. Yeah. I mean, the largest cities in the world would have been in Asia, I think, yeah, maybe, like, maybe a million people. Yeah, a million at the very most. And yeah. Somewhere like, so two, yeah. uh, 200,000 or a quarter of a million people in London, which when you think about at that point the city was 1500 years old but Mm -hmm. it had never really grown past that point now we start seeing these people coming flocking to london and london just kind of explodes in growth um, it's kind of like it mirrors what happened during the Industrial Revolution in the 1800s yeah. when people from the town started moving to London again to find work but in this case it was largely for protection um, and because their towns were getting wiped out by other things like plague, like plague. And, and and everything like that, so there were just more opportunities, better life in London yeah, than there the, was. The same reason anybody elsewhere. migrates at any time in history really is for better opportunities yeah. for for their lives and their kids. Right? And this is presumably why Shakespeare made his way there, and it worked out well for him because he did end up very wealthy. Yeah, and and it worked out precisely because there was all this other wealth. Uh, so one of the things that. Uh, that expanded in this time was entertainment options and the playhouses were um, pretty much not brand new, but Lindsay had mentioned uh, one of the things that happened before was uh, traveling troops would go around the countryside performing plays. But they were morality plays. They were, they were part of the Christian tradition. Yeah. They weren't entertainment full of body comedy and everything like yeah, that. It you, was, m- you might have some like, uh, mythological figures from English history like St. George yeah. fighting dragons yeah. that would be about as as common or pop culture as you would get yeah. most of most these of it was were, bible stories yeah, stations of the cross and yeah. you know the story of this saint or whatever yeah or Noah or something like that yeah. yeah like it's it's very basic stuff so now you have this different kind of of play that's mm-hmm. being performed but it's a very low brow type of entertainment option it's not considered something that the higher classes would participate in. Except for Queen Elizabeth herself yes. she was actually... She loved this She stuff. loved the plays. So she was actually a patron of um, the... Well, not her, but her Lord Chamberlain, which yeah. is the Prime Minister equivalent of today. Uh, he was uh, a proponent of the plays as well, and he actually uh, endorsed the troupe that uh, Shakespeare was a part of. Lord Chamberlain's Men yep. uh, was one of Shakespeare's first... Uh, well, it was the first, I think. And then yeah. it later fell under the purview of of King James and became the King's Men. The King's Men. But so, yeah, I mean, so this this reflects the elevated station of, of plays during this period. Yeah. Um, but when it started, the plays 
would have been performed outside the city of London Mm -hmm. in an area known, now it's the South Bank of London, but it was Southwark at the time, and it was kind of like the red light district Mm -hmm. of London, um, outside the walls of the city, so not subject to the laws and regulations or protection of the city. So you had a lot of illegal stuff going down. You had um, prostitution. There was a lot of kind of sketchy gambling dens and bear baiting pits. And then these playhouses, which up until this point there was no such thing as dedicated playhouses they would all you know you would have bear baiting and then you'd the bears would well the dead bears and all the animals everything (laughs) would be pulled out and then you'd have the play would go on on and then you'd have another bear brought in and it was all done in the same place so the building of the rose and the globe those were kind of the first purpose-built playhouses Mm -hmm. in english history so that's kind of interesting and it all kind of happened because people like Elizabeth elevated that station and and made it what it is. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. So a little bit of uh, linguistic history has to, we have to talk about that a little bit too, Mm. because uh, this was a time of the English language shifting and changing quite a bit. Um, There was something underway called the Great Vowel Shift, and I for the life of me, can never really quite understand what it is. So, Lindsay, would you be able to explain the Great Vowel Shift, I can please? do my best. <laughs> um, it takes, you have to go back a little bit because English as a language kind of is a blend of a lot of different languages. English is three different languages in a trench coat, all huddled, yeah, pretending to be one thing. Yeah, it absolutely is. That's, and, and it may maybe more, maybe 20 people in a yeah, trench coat. Yeah. It's a very long trench coat. Um, but it kind of grows up in this in this area of of um, yeah, melding, like it just it it's a melting pot is what it is. So there's you know a bit of French and there's a bit of um, uh, Anglo-Saxon and there's some uh, Celtic and there's there's a whole bunch of different languages that kind of grow up and become what we know as English today. And to this day, we still are a very um, we borrow a lot of words from other languages and, mm-hmm. and adopt them, and then they become part of our language. We have a million words at our disposal compared to another language like French, which has 25,000 or something like that. Like there's... Must be more than that. But maybe yeah, more than that. Yeah, You're right. It's not, but it's not, it's it's not, not like nearly. English, yeah. Maybe 250,000? 200,000 200, sounds more right. Either way. <laughs> um, just add a zero. <laughs> my math skills are not as good as my <laughs> linguistic skills. It's understandable. Um, but at this time, so we had the, the, the Norman conquest of England kind of shifted the language from English became the language of the, the common folk mm-hmm. and French was the language of the court. And then you had this this Frenchification of English, which resulted in the the language of Chaucer, which when you read it, there's a lot of French spelling and French pronunciation in the way that vowels are pronounced. Mm-hmm. Now there's a debate amongst a lot of scholars about why the Great Vowel Shift happened, whether it was because English, which was elevating once you had kings who were speaking English, they grew up learning English and mm-hmm. they stopped using French as a, a court language. Um, whether the common folk, the common tongue, was trying to be more like French or trying to be less like French, but the the way that people were pronouncing words began to shift away from the language that, that Chaucer would use. And Chaucer was a writer who was working in the the late 1200s early 1300s so about 200 years before Shakespeare 250 years so can you give us an example of of a a word that would have sound different uh to Chaucer and then how it would have sounded in Shakespeare um and maybe if 
there's a good example that you can think of, one that would also then also sound different to us today. Yeah, absolutely. So, for example, um, in the prologue to the Canterbury Tales, mm-hmm. um, a good word to look at this is the is the word April, the mm. the month April. Yeah. The very first line of the prologue to the Canterbury Tales is pronounced in Middle English as Juan that April with his shortest sota. Okay, which it doesn't sound like <laughs> doesn't English sound like at all. Doesn't all. sound like anything. Mm, yeah. But um, it, what it basically is saying is that, you know, in April when when we have lots of showers, when the rain showers are coming down and soaks the earth, right? Um, April. Mm-hmm. The word, and it's become April. Yeah. Okay. And that reflects the shift in the way that those vowels are pronounced. So every uh, single vowel right. yeah. in the English language literally just shifted over. If you looked at a linguistic chart, and we'll post one uh, in our okay. in our um, description, you'll see that that the word a went from a to a. Yeah, that becomes yeah. the long vowel sound, uh, right? Okay. And the the letter i went from e to i. Yeah. Or to yeah, i, okay. right? Like it depends yeah. on where it is, but the, all those vowels started to shift. So, so it was you a have change in pronunciation. It was more than absolutely yeah. a change okay. of, of pronunciation, and and it, it happened with the vowels exclusively. So the vowel shift at, at Shakespeare's time was kind of, it was reaching the end. So the words were more or less becoming solidified as the pronunciations that we have today. But there are still differences that um, make what Shakespeare was using. A different language to the words that we use today and a great example of this is in the prologue to uh, Romeo and Juliet mm. um, where if you read it or hear it in the you're not reading it, if you hear it in the original pronunciation um, which was really fascinating to listen to I think the the globe put on a production of Romeo and Juliet that Using was in the original, the original pronunciation yeah. um, a few years ago and uh, one of the lines um, from forth the fatal loins of these two foes is the line that, that we, we would read. That That's way. how we would read it. If you read it in original pronunciation, the word loins becomes loins. From forth like the fatal lines, yeah. which does sound like lines. So all of a sudden, it's it's loins. It's your it's your groin. It's your it's it's genetic yeah. material. Like from forth the fatal loins of the Capulets and the Montagues, yeah. but it also is. From forth the fatal lines, the 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 lineages mm-hmm. of these characters, right? Yeah. So it's it's a body comedy, but it's also this elevated language. That's a that's a rhyme that doesn't or a word that doesn't translate translate anymore, yeah. anymore because we read loins and it has a different connotation. But to Shakespeare's audiences, it would have had kind of a Multiple pun, con- yeah, yeah, connotation, yeah. So and yeah, that's yeah. because of the pronunciation. Yeah. So the pronunciation does shift. This is why Shakespeare can be a little tricky because you need these footnotes in order to understand it. It doesn't change your reading of the line at all. But um, another example might be um, at the end, what what here shall miss our toil shall strive to mend. If you write it in the original pronunciation, it's what ear shall miss our toil sh- shall strive to mend because they didn't pronounce the H at the start of here. Uh-huh. So it's not just what we will not put on, what here on the stage will miss, our toil shall strive to mend. What what my prologue is not going to, it doesn't get across to you, the rest of the play will perform. Uh, okay. It's also saying what ear shall miss, your ear. If you don't hear what I'm saying right now, what you'll see yeah. coming up we'll will make sense. Yeah. So okay. it's, it's just one of those things that... 
Yeah. So, I mean, that's, yeah. And it's worth noting because as you, as you read, uh, that's one of the most common problems is like, oh, well this, like it's supposed to be a rhyming couplet and you're like, oh, this doesn't rhyme. Well, it did in Shakespeare's time because it was pronounced differently. And that's a, that's a common one. Uh, I know when I first started reading Shakespeare, I was like, why, why do some lines rhyme and some don't? And my, my uh, high school teacher also had to explain the vowel shift and I still don't remember. So, uh, sorry to all my high school teachers, uh, (laughs) didn't stick. Sorry. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, this is, that is a key thing. The, the fact that Shakespeare is kind of in between these two worlds of, um, the vowels, the vowels and the expression and the pronunciation of Middle English and Chaucer. And then he's also in between, uh, he's between that and the pronunciation that we have and that yeah. we use. I mean, um, it's, it's early modern English. That's literally what the language is it's called. called right? Yeah. So, so he kind of has period. access to both. And, yeah. and that's really interesting. And, and that's, uh, it's, it's worth noting. And that's um, why he can, you know, draw parallels and, you know, make all those puns that you just mentioned in, right. you know, the intro to Romeo and Juliet uh, alone, there's two things that we could, oh, there's, that are and there's props. so many more that I'm sure that, that, you know, you would need a degree in original pronunciation yeah. in order to get to it. To get right? it all. So. Yeah. So we won't do that, but we, we might point out a few if there's a particular, uh, a liner or so that we want to highlight. Especially the ones that don't make sense to modern yeah, ears, right? Exactly. Um, but the, Shakespeare was not the only one writing in this time either, though. Uh, this was really kind of the height of a lot of the growth in the English language. Uh, it was, you know, uh, Edmund Spencer was writing the Fairy Queen around yeah. this time. Uh, Sir Thomas More was wrote Utopia in the mm-hmm. 1570s, I think. Um, Sir Francis so, Bacon with yeah. all of his writings. Yeah, you know, he's Velocity a statesman. Stamp. Yeah. yeah. So, so it, yeah. yeah, all of that stuff is, is really coming to the fore um, in a way that it never had. And it's like Aiden said, it's because we had this blossoming of of peace, which led to a blossoming of, of art and culture. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the opposite to today. I think the best art of today is produced during times of turmoil. Um, yeah, but not like Syria turmoil. <laughs> like no, there's not much great poetry being written there. But yeah. when it, it's like, it's a different, it, it's, it's cool to see that this is how it actually. Um, well, and you do mention though, there was still turmoil. This was absolutely. a very turbulent society in a lot of ways. Um, and the biggest one is, uh, as you described, was about the, uh, shifting allegiances of the church i mean for yeah. a lot of people they were faithful subjects of the king um or queen and when the king said oh now you're protestant well i guess i'm protestant and then oh the next one says you're catholic and yeah. oh well i guess i'm catholic and so there was a lot of that you know back and forth and um you know it was hard to tell well especially frankly because the anglican and, and catholic churches weren't that different uh, at no. this point in time doctrinally they're still not really all that <laughs> exactly. different they they had they had they do have differences, but yeah. um, only, you know, really dedicated people would have cared, <laughs> to be frank. <laughs> um, so, I mean, there was so this religious uh, upheaval and change was uh, kind of traumatic for a lot of people. And it caused, you know, rifts within families and well, so and forth. It, it may have even been impacting Shakespeare on a on a very personal level. Yes. As his family may have actually been secret Catholics. There's yeah. a lot of theorizing about that. The Arden family, there was a, a cousin of his mother's who was arrested and executed for a plot against Queen Elizabeth ah, um, as, a, as a Catholic. So, I mean, this is not something that, that w- and we know that that's a fact. Yeah. So it's it's not entirely outside the realm of possibility that Shakespeare or his family may have been practicing Catholicism secretly or may have held some secret allegiance to the Catholic Church, yeah. which would not have been uncommon. They, they had things like priest holes in houses out in the country. And I think I remember reading that one of... Shakespeare's houses it may have been the house on Henley Street when it was renovated or something in the 1800s they found a like 
Elizabethan era Bible in the rafters mm. or something like yeah. hidden, yeah. which may have belonged to the Shakespeare family. Yeah. Like that, it's all circumstantial, but it's kind of cool to think about when you when you realize that that this may have been yeah personal for uh, very for Shakespeare personal himself. For Shakespeare. Yeah, um, and along with that religious. Uh, aspect there was a lot of superstition oh, yeah. out, out in the the Elizabethan society um you know obviously a big part of that was witches witches were obviously, obviously. the the source of all evil I mean James the first wrote a uh, a, a manual on how to d- determine who the witches were well obviously if they float with a goose on the other thing I don't remember the Monty Python sketch. sorry <laughs> but yeah there there are, there are scientific ways to determine this of course absolutely um, so yeah witch, witchcraft was obviously a big one uh, there was all sorts of superstitions though yeah, you fairy know. folk and yeah. stuff in the woods which come across in Shakespeare's plays as well I mean we yeah. have witches in Macbeth and we've got fairies like Puck and um, um, Midsummer Night's Dream and stuff yeah yeah so it's all over the place and there's magic I mean there's there's Prospero in uh, The Tempest absolutely. with his oh, yeah. magician For ship sure. I guess and yeah so, so it is a time of of um, you know, a lot of just superstitious, uh, magical thinking alongside the Why do you think the that there was so much superstitious thinking at that time? Well, because the Bible didn't really come down on a lot of things, right? Like, I, I, I think, you know, the, the church's answer for a lot of uh, it's God's questions. Will. Yeah, it's, it's God's, God's wills, will. exactly. But if people are like, well, then how many angels can fit on a pinhead? You know, they, they started getting into those really uh, nuanced questions that, you know, the church perhaps didn't want to answer because right. it would open themselves up to contradictions and so forth. So you fill in gaps with other things yeah. as witches, as sprites, as the uh, great chain of being. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, the that, wheel that's, of fortune. Exactly. Like there were these other concepts that were not really religious at all, but they, they, they helped influence how people saw the world. And you named two of them, the, the great chain of being being like the, the, the hierarchy, hierarchy yeah of, of how things worked so you had the king slash god at the top or yeah. queen uh who had a direct connection to god and angels and all yeah, that around all those, them. exactly and the next layer is the nobles nobles and everything and it's it's a very and that's how society is structured Men, yeah women well, women at the very pigs, bottom well the big pigs and the women are, are side by side really. right oh, okay and they're both right. property right yeah, so right <laughs> so that was a big one the other one uh the wheel of fortune which is kind of just a a way of managing i think the turbulent times and you know how you could be down on your luck one day um and the wheel of fortune then would be something that would t- pull you up and at the one point you'll be at the top of the but you're the gonna get right back down to the bottom exactly so don't you, you may have all the money today but you'll have plague tomorrow yeah right exactly or if but your I mean, kid just died of plague you're right you're there are better days ahead right it's it's it is kind of like a way to order your life to mm-hmm. say you know in a, in a chaotic world where there are no answers and these random shitty things are happening to you all the time. It's like, well, okay, there's this lady fortune who is Mm -hmm. controlling things or it's because I'm not accepting the great chain of being. I'm stepping outside of my station or something like that, right? Um, It's it's a more palatable answer maybe than it's God's will, which is kind of still inaccessible. I mean, we had the Bible printed at this point in English, but, you know, these things were still not maybe not entirely accessible to the average lay person. Yeah. So these were more personal. Yeah. Ways of interpreting the, the things that were happening in the world around them. Yep. Double, double toil and trouble. Fire burn and cauldron bubble. So 
we, we mentioned Shakespeare retiring from the stage in 1613. Mm-hmm. He went back to Stratford-upon-Avon and then uh, probably died in mm-hmm. 1616 yep. on his birthday, possibly, probably which also was St. George's Day. Kind yeah. of, um, there's a, a really nice symmetry there that England's greatest writer was born and died on their the patron saint Saints. of England's yeah. day. Um, so maybe that's another reason why we want to fit his birthday on the 23rd. But yeah, um, yeah and... and it's interesting that, you know, immediately after his death, well, within se- seven years after his death, we had the first folio published, which mm-hmm. was, there were quarto editions of the plays that were published. Some plays. Um, some, some of plays the plays, not all of them, yeah. published from the memories of the actors. They would tell, write the play down and then send that off to the printers or possibly the the best versions might have been, you know, actual manuscripts that were written by the author that were sent off to the printer and then those manuscripts were used as the basis for these quarto editions. But the folio was the first time that the entirety of, of Shakespeare's plays, so all of his plays were published in one place. And that was done in 1623, and it was put on by um, some of his friends, Ben Johnson, and um, friends of his from his lifetime. So it, it totally cements his legacy as a playwright and as a, um, a genius writer. We have the monument in Stratford-upon-Avon that was mm-hmm. erected at the same time, 1623. And these are things that are that are disputed by those who don't believe that Shakespeare was the man who wrote. That the man from Stratford is the man who the wrote, man the, who place, wrote yeah. the works of Shakespeare. But it's, it's undeniable that this, I guess you could call it a cult of personality that grows up around him started at this time and it leads to this great legacy that continues on to this day. So mm-hmm. we have... Um, well, but it's it's worth mentioning that the, the, it was fairly short-lived because Shakespeare kind of faded, not into obscurity, his plays were probably still performed, but, you know, during the Civil War that followed, you know, when well, they killed... Well, there were no King, plays there allowed. There were no plays, exactly. <laughs> the Puritans didn't allow yeah. plays to the, be performed. So there were some periods where uh, he was less well-revered, uh, um, but it, he really kind of picked up again in the 18th century. So it was Well, just, after the Restoration, when, yeah. when you had all these um, comedies of error, comedies of manner that were being performed, um, the the... It was less. Shakespeare was not in vogue. Mm-hmm. It was after that period, and then and then really with the Romantics in the nineteenth century that yeah, Shakespeare's was... scholarship began to pick up and interest in Shakespeare. And I think maybe um, with Victoria on the throne, you have another great period of of imperialist expansion mm-hmm. and its its glory and its. Um, we're looking as a nation to find, you know, all the great things about that justifies Ourselves, our yeah, position exactly. as as the top of the world, which yeah. arguably they were at that point, for better or for worse. Um, so, yeah, that's when Shakespeare becomes England's national poet, poet yeah. right? And, and he's really canonized most strongly at that point. I mean, yeah, the Victorians loved Shakespeare. Um, and that love kind of has carried its momentum through to this day, yeah. uh, really. So, um, you know, in the 20th century as well, there was um, it, it spread. I mean, the fact that in 1931, uh, there was a Chinese silent film uh, in the golden era doing uh two gentlemen of verona for instance uh we just recently watched this version uh you know is saying something the fact Mm -hmm. that this was already a global phenomenon 
in the early 20th century, Shakespeare had already achieved or he had been propelled into that to that stage of possibly having something to do with the fact that England conquered most, most of, of the, the world. world. Yeah. yeah. So I'd every so. place that England was that there was a colony of England, Shakespeare is revered. Shakespeare is taught in their curriculum. Shakespeare is understood and performed um, for for the commoners to this day. Yeah. But it's it's definitely um, it's noteworthy that you can find translation of Shakespeare's plays in Arabic and in um, various Chinese languages Mm. and in indigenous languages and in Klingon. Um, Of course, the original. (laughs) (laughs) So it is fascinating that that there's this great legacy for this one writer who wrote 37 plays, 154 sonnets, two long poems. You know, it's it's quite remarkable. Um, And from that, as I mentioned at the start, there there is a whole industry based around this guy because of this uh it, there's his uh you can see his birth home mm-hmm. uh in stratford upon avon you can see the school the school where he went he likely attended is still open there are still kids just going to school there every day are uh, there actually is it actually still a i school, think it was still a school it, yeah i don't know i think it's just a private venue at this point oh is it I, I, it may not be a school when we went there i thought i saw kids in in uniform but anyways maybe i was way off on that maybe it was just in my brain uh but yeah there's uh you can see anne hathaway's cottage his wife's yeah. cottage you can see the house um uh nash's house and uh that the houses that he that he bought and lived in when he retired and returned yeah, to after, after exactly um, um and then in england in london there is the globe they rebuilt yes. his theater they rebuilt the globe yeah theater. starting in the 1970s the playwright american playwright sam wanamaker it's actually a really interesting story he went to london looking for the globe he expected to find the yeah. globe still standing yeah. had no idea that it burned <laughs> down in the in 1613 yeah. and when he couldn't find it he's like well we'll just build, we'll just build it again one, yeah. and it took like 30 years for them yeah. to yeah it was finished it. in like 98 oh, well, or something 97 so like yeah. a little well no about 20 25 least, years yeah um and and it's built to immaculate uh, dimensions. It's the exact same size. It's built using period material. They got special dispensation from the city of London to put a thatched roof there, yep. which was they were made illegal after the fire of 1666 because they catch fire because they catch fire. <laughs> um, so there's there's sprinkler systems that have been built into it, which we saw when we did our tour there in 2013 yeah. or 2014. Um, and uh, but it's it when you go there, you get this sense that that it's um, it is. You're, you're in Shakespeare's world. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating because the, when we went there, we were there in 2017, and I think they, or no, in 2013, they opened the um, restoration, like a, a, Jane, a Jacobean theater that's downstairs. Oh. They have a diff, another theater now oh, where they put right. on yes. other plays. Yeah. So it's it's now, you have an Elizabethan theater, and then you have a Jacobean theater. Um, so you can see different the different style of plays. Yeah, it's an indoor nice. theater, candlelit, yeah. whereas the Globe is open air, yeah. and um, you still have it's it's drastically reduced um, in uh, um, capacity. You can't they don't fit the three thousand people that you would have fit. The, I think the seating limit is about fifteen hundred or something, but you can still pay money and stand on the ground and watch a play, and and it's 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 such a great place to watch Shakespeare. Like yeah. it's it's really there's nothing like it 
and we've seen Shakespeare performed um, in our River Valley. We've seen Shakespeare performed on film. We've seen Shakespeare performed in German. Yeah. At a, in Germany. A the- yeah. a theater at a in, local theater in, in Bremen. Bremen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we've seen Shakespeare performed as silent films and as in fringe productions. Yeah. We saw a production of Macbeth last year that was completely silent with hand puppets. Mm-hmm. I mean, but there's nothing that, that matches being there in the globe and seeing and hearing it done on stage. Yeah. And there's a whole... Um, museum that's dedicated to Elizabethan times and and of course it's built very close to the original location so Mm -hmm. when they were doing when they were building it they found you know artifacts and things in the ground that had been there since Shakespeare's day you know and you can still mudlarks along the Thames can still find coins and they can still find pieces of the box the box that that people would put money in which was broken open at the end of the performance to get the money out so a box office smash is literally (laughs) could be literally Mm. because the box in the office would need to be smashed in order to get the money out. Yeah. Like all of these things, it's it's just, it's really cool. I'm, <laughs> I'm nerding out right now. Yeah, I, it's great. I love it, Liz. <laughs> Once more into the breach, dear friends! Once more! I'll close the water with our English dead! So this and all of those other things are, are things that we're going to be talking about yes, on indeed. our podcast. Aiden, why don't you tell us a little bit about some of the topics that we are going to delve into? Well, we've got uh, quite a few picked out. I think when we've, we've basically done it already, but we're going to go into more depth. The influence and the legacy of Shakespeare. Yeah. Uh, you know, what what is the impact of him uh, and his writings been uh, down the ages? Uh, we're going to do definitely an episode on Shakespeare's women. The, char- the female characters in his plays are interesting and uh, hard to decipher and fun to talk about so we're definitely going to have an episode devoted to them we're going to do Shakespeare and sex uh Shakespeare's academia like what is what what is that industry all about um we're going to do Shakespeare's plays on film because film adaptations are a big uh draw and they continue to make a lot of money in a lot of cases um we're also going to do Shakespeare this one I'm really looking forward to Shakespeare as a fictional character Shakespeare as a person like think of Shakespeare in love and uh, well, the upcoming film with uh, Kenneth Branagh fan Ken- fiction yeah basically um, which is where he plays Shakespeare yeah. in his later days in Stratford-upon-Avon so yeah. that'll be really cool and uh Upstart Crow you mentioned it earlier that's yes. one of our favorite uh Shakespeare yes the BBC um the BBC sitcom mm-hmm. um that is uh, currently airing, but it's uh, in its third season. I, I think, think it just finished be. the third series. Yeah. I think, and it features Four David series. Mitchell as, yes, as, as Shakespeare. Shakespeare. It's brilliant. It's so it's much fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that'll be really cool. Producing and acting in a Shakespeare play will be really yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's another topic um, we want to do. We'll so. hopefully get some some guests on who can yeah. talk about what it's like to put on a Shakespearean play or what it's like to act, to, to speak the words of Shakespeare in a modern context and how you get into that role. I think that'll be a really cool one. Yeah. This is... In addition to episodes about each of the plays. So we are going to take you through each of the 37 plays, um, the sonnets and the the long poems. We haven't decided yet if we're going to dive into those, but for sure, each of these plays. Think of this as like your English class, but hopefully more fun. Yeah. And hopefully with some more bickering between us. We didn't bicker at all this episode. No, this is this is kind of a uh, an introduction to our podcast. Yeah, okay. But we should have more bickering. If we will gonna... have more bickering. Okay, good. We Just will, so, so sure. you're aware, audience, there will be bickering. Uh, it's like there will be blood, but... You know, well, there will company. be blood too, but you just won't see it because this is the nature of an audio broadcast. Agreed. Parting is such sweet sorrow that I shall say good night till it be morrow. 
So we hope you've enjoyed this kind of overview of Shakespeare's life and times, Elizabethan history, the context through which the plays of Shakespeare and the works of Shakespeare um, should be perhaps entered into. Um, we hope you'll join us again next time for our first episode, which will be... The Two Gentlemen of Verona. You can find all our episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcast fix. If you want to tell us what you think of Shakespeare, his plays, poems, or any of the topics we discuss, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us on Twitter, that's at TheBixPod, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TheBixPod, or by email at TheBixPod at gmail.com. That's our cue to exit.